If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Jude. Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. It's 25 verses, real short, so if you're not careful, you can flip right by it. So if you find yourself in Revelation or your concordance, you've gone too far, just go back. And that's where we'll be this morning. Jude is an odd book. Um, if you've read it, there's some things he says, and you're kind of like, what in the world is, is Jude talking about? And we don't have time this morning to get into all the details, but what I want to do this morning is talk about the big message of Jude. What is Jude writing about? And I think it's twofold. I think it's one, he's telling the believers to contend for the faith, fight for the faith. And the other thing is he's given a warning. He's saying, a life without Jesus is disaster. If you want to live your life as the master, if you want to live without Jesus, you can expect disaster. And so those are two main messages that we find in the book of Jude. So let's just get right into it for the sake of time because we got chairs up here, so I'm going to be calling random people. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Uh, But we do have something I want to get to. Jude 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So right away, Jude says, I'm the author and I'm the brother of James. This is the same James who wrote the book of James that we have in our New Testament. It's the same James who's the, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem. This James was the half-brother of Jesus, which means Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't describe himself that way. He calls himself a slave. Jude, a slave of Jesus. And we're gonna come back to that in a minute, but he goes on and says, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The called. If you are here and you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted him as your savior for eternal life, you are a part of a group, a special group called the called. And I don't care what you think about yourself, I don't care what people have told you about yourself in the past, you belong to a special group called the called. And Jude describes the called, you and I, two ways. He says, you're loved in God the Father and you are kept. And I like the way the Net Bible translates this. It says, you are wrapped in the love of God. And it's written in the perfect tense. So in Greek, that means you are wrapped and you will always be wrapped up in the love of God. And and he holds you tight and secure and protected until he stands you before Jesus. You remember when you're little and you get out of the tub and your knees are, you know, shaking and your teeth are chattering and and your mom or your dad or grandparents, someone would come in, just wrap you up with this big towel and pick you up and and take you out. Uh, When we do it to Eli, he calls himself a baby burrito because we wrap him so tight. And uh, that is us, the called. As the called, God has wrapped us up tight in his love, and we are kept wrapped up in his love. And he holds us tight until the day he stands us before Jesus. And... That's important because that means that you and I have meaning. That means you and I have purpose and significance because God wouldn't have, we can't be wrapped up in his love if we don't mean anything to him. And we can't be kept protected and held tight until the day he stands for Jesus if he doesn't have purpose and significance for us right now, here. And if you're not a part of the call, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, You are still loved and you are still important. So important that God would send his one and only son to die in your place for your sins, conquering death, 
giving eternal life to you as a free gift so that he can hold you tight and protect you until the day he stands you before Jesus. So we are important and have significance. And verse three says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So Jude is saying, I was gonna write to you about this thing, but something's come up, and now I need to write to you about fighting for the faith. The word necessity here has the idea of urgency and disaster. Something has just happened, and Jude's like, hang on, I need to write to you about this now. He says, I'm appealing to you. And the word appeal is the Greek word parakaleo. And the only reason I'm showing you this is because I think Jude's doing something really cool. Parakaleo means call alongside. He has just called them the called ones. You are the called. He's saying, I'm calling on the called to come alongside and fight with me for the faith. I'm calling on the called to come alongside and fight, contend for the faith with me. And the word fight here, the Greek word is agonizomai. It's where we get our English word agonize. The fight for the faith will be agonizing. And the faith he's talking about is the body of truth, the revealed truth that God has given to us. And central to that truth is Jesus. Central to the body of truth is the death and resurrection and that in Jesus and in him alone is life. That is central to the faith. Look at verse four. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. The NEB Bible says they've wormed their way in unnoticed. And these certain persons on down in the verse, he calls them ungodly persons. These ungodly persons have come in and they've removed Jesus from the center and they said, you do what you want to do. It's about you. You live according to your desires. These false teachers have come in and they do two things you see in the verse. It says that they've turned or exchanged the grace of our God into licentiousness, meaning you can live however you want to live and deny our only master, Lord Jesus Christ. And the word ungodly means simply just to be without God. So we know these are unbelievers coming in, preaching a different message. They were out God, without God, obviously, because they didn't believe in God. But we too, as believers, can be without God. Even though we're wrapped up tight in his love and protected until the day he stands us before Jesus, we too can get carried away by false messages, we can get carried away just by living for ourselves and not living with Jesus, or not living for him. We can live without Jesus if we're not careful. And this was the threat Jude is writing to fight against. These people without God are coming in and they're deceiving believers to make them think that they can live a life without God. He's no longer the sinner you are. Do what you want to do. And I think Jude is actually writing from a very real experience because as the half-brother of Jesus, we know from the Gospels, he didn't believe in Jesus. He lived a life without Jesus until the resurrection when he saw him. And then he believed. And, and I think that's why he doesn't call himself the half-brother who lived without Jesus. He calls himself a slave because the word for master in verse 4 is slave-owner. He sees his relationship with Jesus as he's the master and I'm the slave. 
He's center, and I live in submission to him. I don't live for myself. I live for him who died and rose again for me. That's how Jude understood the Christian faith and living it out. Verse 5, he says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. And what he's saying is, you know these things that I'm about to tell you. I'm about to tell you what you already know, which is if you want to live your life without Jesus, if you want to follow these weirdos and thinking that you can live for yourself, you're wrong. You can expect disaster. And he gives six Old Testament examples following. But what I want to do right now is I want to invite some of the team up from our trip. And as they come up, um, they know they're coming up. That'd be mean. Uh, As they come up, uh, I just want to say that what Jude was fighting against in the first century uh, is a very real reality in England today. Um, Here's a mic. Someone was, Kevin. Um, Jude was writing that, uh, that these people would not move in a direction where they lived their life without Jesus because he knew disaster would follow. And in England, they don't have Gnosticism, which is what Jude was fighting, but it's the same thing. It's always been the same thing throughout time. Remove Jesus from the center and put man in the middle and say, live how you want to live. We call it postmodernism today. And basically all that is, is there is no God. You live how you want to live. Whatever's right for you is right for you. Whatever's right for me is right for me. And that has swept uh, England. And so what I want to do up here is, through some of our stories, give you a little glimpse, taste of a world without Jesus. Um, so we're going to start here with Tyler. He's got, I didn't tell him to do that, but he's wearing his... His socks. Cool. Um, All right, so yeah, let's, let's Oh, here's our team. Yeah. Tyler, who is this? Okay, so this is a girl that I met, um, and Amanda, you were there too. So her name is Fran. She informed us that if you say her name Fran, it's really ugly. So her name is Fran. And um, she was obviously, she's just this basically karaoke singer who was sitting in the middle of the city center. And we were going around trying to engage with people and share the gospel. But this girl, when we started talking with her, it was really cool because we just sat like crisscross on the floor in this tunnel and had a conversation. Uh, But this girl, she informed us after we were talking to her about the gospel that she only had one other Christian friend. She only knew one other Christian. And that Christian was really mean to her about not being a believer and was, you know, thumping the Bible. And so she really didn't like Christianity based on that friend. So when we shared the gospel with her and we were having this conversation and talking to her about grace, she was like, you know, you guys are really doing a good job. You're making me think differently about what I believe about Christianity. So it was really cool. But it's just, it's amazing because I've never met anyone in the States who didn't know a Christian. For her to tell me that she lives in a world without Jesus, where there is only one person she knows who's a believer, and that believer is not even shining as a light in the darkness, that blew me away. And it gave me a new sense of urgency for sharing the gospel, both there and here. Yeah, I mean, I've grown up in Stillwater, right here in the Bible Belt. 
And, I mean, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Christian. <laughs> Not that you should throw rocks at Christians. That's bad. Uh, but it is weird to go there. It feels like you got gone into, like, some sort of time machine, and you went into a different world where everything's the same, except nobody knows Jesus. And when you talk about Jesus, they think you're weird and you're dumb. So it, it is so weird to go to a world and see people who don't even know Christians. Uh, Amanda, you and I and Megan, we were going door to door one day, and they all run together. Uh, and to, I walked up. It can be scary knocking on someone's door. You never know what's going to happen. And I caught up to, to Amanda, and she was crying. And so I'm like, oh, no, what did they do to you? <laughs> But you want to talk about that? This is not them, but this is what it looks like to go up to some stranger's door. Okay, so we had the opportunity to go door to door, Megan and I did. And um, we met a woman named Suzette. And um, when we knocked on her door, she had a really large house for England. That's the first thing I noticed because all the houses are tiny and they're always attached to another house. So um, to have a big house, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And as we began talking with Suzette, Um, She said she was around 50 years old. She was originally from London, um, which London was about five hours, four or five hours from Sunderland. Um, So she moved from London, and the reason she gave was because um, she had experienced so much hurt there. And that was rather intriguing, and as she went on, she um, described that she had experienced so much hurt in the world that she doesn't leave her house anymore. And the only person she sees is her mom. So I don't know how long it had been since she'd seen another human being. But um, as she talked to us, it just really hit me hard that a world without Jesus doesn't have hope. Um, We have the greatest hope in in the world, and yet we don't share that with people. And um, there are people, like, that are just so hurting that they don't even leave their home And that was really difficult for me to fathom. Um, But what really struck me is just we have such a great hope that we can share with the world, and we we aren't. So that was that was the lesson I took. What about you, Megan? Um, Yeah. So I think it was really just impactful to meet someone who just had experienced so much hurt that she wouldn't leave her house. That she was scared to leave her house because she was scared that someone else was going to hurt her. And I know that just hit Amanda and I really hard because I don't know that I've ever met someone that was so scared to leave her house because she didn't want to be hurt anymore. And so I think, like, living in America in the Bible Belt, like, it's different than England, but also that realizing that there are people around us and in our community who are hurting and who need the gospel, who need Jesus, and that, as Amanda said, we have this hope that we get to share with people, but yet we don't do it. And so just, like hit home with us that you never know who's hurting or you never know what someone has gone through. You never know if they're searching for hope or they are just hurting and they need Jesus. And so we should just be sharing the gospel wherever we are because you never know what someone has gone through or what they're feeling. Yeah, it's crazy that in a world without Jesus, people are hurt so bad and experience so much pain they won't even leave their house. They're missing out on life and this may be the only life they have. Kevin, uh, you can see Kevin up there in the top left. He's coming in as backup there. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit what's going on here? And... Well, this was an interesting uh, picture here. We, these are a group of uh, Muslim boys who go to school, uh, apparently close. There's a school really close right there. 
and this was kind of on the town square. And uh, as the, while I was there, we actually engaged these boys. Alan and I engaged these boys probably on the very first day. We actually did some uh, uh, street ministry, and uh, Alan really had their attention. And when, he, when, when you start looking at uh, the false religions that are out there and the, uh, the way that they're presented to, uh, I don't know, what are those, 12, anywhere from 10 to probably 13, 14-year-old boys, uh, and you start presenting it to them, they'll start believing it. And as Alan started questioning these boys about um, their faith and what they believed and where they were going after death and, and why they were on this earth and all those things, uh, several of them started taking notice, and uh, and then David and I engaged them, and then I engaged them one day. I saw we saw them throughout the uh, I saw them throughout this uh, trip we were on, and uh, there were two or three of them that uh, became uh, they they called me by name. Hey, Kevin, America, yeah, you know, and so uh, it was an interesting conversation with these guys, and just it it kind of describes the to me it describes the the lost that we have around us, and it's not just with these Muslim boys, it's with the, the atheists or the agnostics that we met, and I recently went, uh, spoke to a guy that had went to Boston and did a, a trip in Boston, and he and I were sharing our conversations about our, our, our journeys, and it's not far from home. You don't have to go to England to find this mentality. It's, it's in America. We live in the Bible Belt. We don't get uh, a lot of this exposed to us, but it's very close to home. And, and his uh, description of Boston was very similar to my description of Sunderland. So back to the, the, the reality is, is that we really need to do a better job of evangelizing in our neighborhood and our neighbors and the people that we work with. And, and because that's where the scripture's taking place. You don't have to go to Sunderland. You don't have to go to Boston. Um, you can do it right where you live. And that's, that's really what I've taken away from the trip. Speaking of evangelism, Haley. Oh, I hit the wrong button. Okay. The last day we had this big barbecue on the beach and we invited people throughout the week. And then as people were walking their dogs by, we engaged them in conversation about Jesus. And... Uh, Haley had a great conversation with somebody. You want to tell us about it? Yeah. Um, so I had a conversation with a young girl named Alana. And I think you can actually see her in this picture with the white jacket on the left. Um, but she started following me around, um, playing games with me, asking me questions, showing me the pictures that she took. She was a really good um, photographer. Um, but she was 12 years old, and we'd been hanging out together for about two hours. And um, over the course of the next hour, three different times, she told me, okay, it's time to go. I have to go home now. And she left, and she came back. And then a few minutes later, she'd be like, okay, I should probably go. And so she left, and then she came back. And the third time she came back, um, I've always had conversations with God that if he wants me to do something, he has to be really obvious. <laughs> and the third time she came back, I was like, maybe I'm missing something. So um, I started talking to her, and Alana is actually involved with the church at Bethesda, and she's been there since October. Um, and I guess in my head, I just kind of wrote people off as if you're in the youth and you're involved, then you're a Christian. And so I decided maybe we should steer this conver conversation in a different direction. 
So um, she was talking a lot about her photography. So um, I was telling her, like, you know, you can use that as a way to really see um, the glory of God. And she was like, yeah, there's just so much beauty in everything. Um, and so I, I finally just cut to the chase, and I said, Alana, um, a lot of things have been going on in England lately. And if you were to die and find yourself in front of God, um, and he were to ask you if he should let you into heaven, what would you say? And she just very sweetly and matter-of-factly said, well, I would say please. And I was like, I thought that was so cute. Um, but what that showed me, she was the first person that I had asked that question that didn't start justifying herself of why she was good enough to be able to get into heaven. Um, and to me, um, that showed me that she knew that she was a sinner. And a world without Jesus, please, is good enough. Um, but I explained the gospel to her, and I said, you don't have to say please. Jesus has already come, and he's died for you, and he wants you to have this. This gift is here for you to accept. Um, and I said, is that a decision you would like to make? And she said, yes. And so um, Alana prayed to receive Christ and um, is now has been uh, meeting with people in the youth from that church. And they sent out a text message in their group me um, with praises that she had uh, come to Christ and now they're planning to um, disciple her. So, uh, but she was just so excited and she came to me the next day, which was our last day, and she just said, thank you for helping me to find the way. And um, what that showed me is that it doesn't, people have to be told multiple times and they have to hear the gospel multiple times. But she knew she just wasn't sure how to make that final step. And so a world without Jesus needs to know that manners are not enough. Yeah. And doing what we've been taught to do by our parents, being the good child isn't going to get you there, but Jesus will. Thanks. Yeah, and I wanted to end with that story because in a world or a culture without Jesus, Jesus is still working. And he's still redeeming. And there are believers there now who are still uh, sharing the gospel. So real quickly, uh, I just want to ask everybody to go down the line. In a word or two, describe the believers that you met at Bethesda Free Church. Committed. Eternal perspective. Um, disciple makers. Um, loving. Persevering. Okay, and we'll come back this way with the mic. <laughs> the last question. Uh, describe in a few words uh, from your experience of being in a culture and a world without Jesus, when you left, how did you feel? How were you impacted? Uh, I felt very um, encouraged that if they're able to be this light in such a dark place, when I'm in a place where it is acceptable to talk about um, what you believe and where you were raised, then I should be much more willing to have those conversations. Well, I think I'm with Haley. Um, I think the things I brought back was that I think sometimes, I, I, this is my second mission I went on in two different perspectives, and, and I think when God sends you out on these, he doesn't send you out to help anybody. He sends you out to help yourself. Uh, which is interesting. So I come back with these things, but I, I really believe the the answer is that um, 
evangelism and discipleship is made every single day in every Christian's life. And if you're not doing that, if you're not evangelizing and you're not discipling someone as a Christian, you're not doing what you're commanded to do. And I know that sounds strict and that sounds harsh, but I think the Bible's very clear. And the reason we get in the situations that we're in in Sunderland and in London and in Boston is because the church, the believers, are not doing what God commanded us to do. I think I was just reminded of the need for the gospel and the need for Jesus, and also just being around a community of believers who were so passionate about evangelism and disciple-making. It motivated me to be someone who shares the gospel and makes disciples wherever I am. Um, Suzette really keeps coming back in my conversation with people, but um, it really reminded me of how great a hope we have and how, um, how faithful a God we serve, and people are just lacking that. And so it really encouraged me that I need to share that hope that I have with people. Um, it really gave me a sense of urgency to see so many people who didn't know Christians. But at the same time, meeting that girl, Fran, um, it, it was interesting because it also gave me hope. Because I found, at least, that with the younger generation, they were looking for something. They knew that there was something more. And, and so, whereas here in the States, we sort of have this doomsday perspective about these millennials, you know, um, who are turning into postmoderns and turning away from God, that's true, but we see that that happened in England 50 years ago. And yet there's hope that with the younger generations, they're, they're looking for something more. They're coming back. So uh, I think that even in the darkest places, God's light can shine. Thanks. Give a hand for the team. It's scary being up here. I'm scared. So I, I hope you, you caught what they're saying, that you don't need to go to a dark place, a world without Jesus, because there's people living their lives here right now without Jesus. And we can be people who are called and fight for the faith right here in Stillwater, Oklahoma. They're just like you. They're the called. They just had an opportunity and they took advantage of it with this trip. Uh, in this worldview, it's, it's here now. Uh, you go on campus, the prevailing view is there is no God. Do what's right for you uh, and I'll do what's right for me. And that's just how it is. Uh, I was watching a major news network this last week, and they had this really smart guy researcher on saying that the United States has influenced 81 different elections around the world. And at the end, the pundit looks at the audience and the camera and says, you know, whether this is right or wrong to the morality of this issue, you decide on Twitter. So morality is found in a group of people uh, and whoever has the loudest voice on Twitter, I guess. Uh, we are living in a culture that is finding it increasingly harder to identify truth and morality because we are living in a culture that is increasingly living without Jesus. And so what does Jude tell us to do? And then we'll be done. What does Jude tell us to do? Uh, we had six flights, three there, three back, and on all the flights they said the same thing. If the cabin loses oxygen, what do we do? 
a mask will drop, put yours on first, and then help those around you. Jesus says the same thing. He says, put your mask on first, help those. He says, fight for your faith. If you want to fight for the faith, fight first for your faith, and then fight for the faith of those around you. So verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he's not saying that you could sin and God's not going to love you anymore, because we've already talked in verse 2, you're wrapped and you will always be wrapped in the love of God. What he's saying is what we all know to be true. When we are walking with God, when we're in fellowship with God, when we're reading and praying and doing all those things, we feel connected. We feel love. But when we live without Jesus and we start doing our own thing and we make ourselves the master, we don't feel connected anymore, do we? And so what he's saying is, you want to fight for your faith, maintain yourself in the love. I would say, stay in fellowship. And he gives three things to do. Go back in verse 20. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith. So the first thing is building yourself up on the faith. It has the idea of strengthening yourself in the truths of the faith, learning God's word. The next thing he says, praying in the Holy Spirit, praying. And then 21, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So how do we fight for our faith? We learn God's word. We pray that we live it out through the power of the Holy Spirit while keeping eternal perspective on the one who's coming to rescue us. And the, uh, the fight is going to be agonizing. i just tell you that because that's what Jude says. And the fight will be agonizing. But you know you're gaining ground in the fight when you start looking more like Jesus. And you know you're looking more like Jesus when you start seeing those around you as Jesus sees them. I love the Gospels because Jesus will roll up on a crowd and says, he felt compassion for them. I roll up on a crowd and I think, oh, I'm going to go the other way. I don't like crowds. But Jesus has mercy and compassion on people. And look at verse 22. You want to fight for the faith of others, have mercy on some who are doubting. There are people who are not maintaining the love of God. They are not in fellowship. They're walking out of faith. They're walking without Jesus, and their faith is faltering, and God wants to use you to fight for their faith. It could be hugging them. It could be praying for them. It could be writing a note to them. It could be inviting them to lunch after church. Who knows? But there are people whose faith are faltering, and we can fight for those people. The second thing, verse 23 you want to fight for others, save others, snatch them out of the fire. Our enemy is not atheists, evolutionists, people who are pushing postmodern agenda. Our, our, they're victims, and we are to love them, and we are to fight for our faith so that we look like Jesus. So when we encounter these people and they talk with us, we point them to the one who can snatch them out of the fire. The next thing, and some have, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Some, you want to help who are caught up in sin, people who are living without Jesus, and they're reaping the disaster that follows. But he says, do so with caution, because that same bent towards sin, that same flesh that caused them to live without Jesus is in you and it's in me. That's why Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall, because any one of us can get caught up in it. It's so easy to live for yourself and make yourself the master and not Jesus. And the ones who are best are the ones who hate sin. 
Because they know, they believe that sin, no matter how small it is, will ruin your life. It will kill your marriage, your career, your relationship with your kids. It will ruin your reputation because that is how deadly sin is. Like I said, the fight will be agonizing. Fighting for your faith is not going to be easy because it puts a target on you because the spiritual forces of evil don't want you looking like Jesus and they definitely don't want your life pointing to Jesus. And so things are going to happen. I don't know, but I know the enemy plays dirty. He has in my life. And uh, uh, you're gonna, your faith's going to get snagged. There's going to be trials. But Jews' brother said, that's all right. Because God's allowing those to mature your faith and to make you look more like Jesus. It's going to be agonizing fighting for the faith of others. Because you're going to give your time, energy, resources to others and you're going to watch them, not all of them, but some of them are just going to blow their lives up with sin. And it's going to be agonizing to watch that. And so as you calculate the cost and ask yourself today, is it worth looking more like Jesus if it means I lose my life, if it means I'm no longer the master? Then I just ask you to look to Jesus, who also calculated the cost, who, who saw you and me in eternal relationship with us worth more than his very own life. And he went to the cross. And the dividends for him, the payout was a relationship with us, and it was worth it. There's, re- there's dividends for us as well. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his pres- or the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. There's going to be joy. If you choose to fight for your faith and to fight for the faith of others in this life, if you choose to say, it's no longer I who lives but Christ in me, Say, I don't want to live for myself, but I want to live for him who died and rose again for me. If you're going to choose to do that, there's going to be great joy. Can you imagine getting there and looking at the one who died for you, the one who fought for you, and he looks you in the eyes and he smiles and says, man, you did good. Well done, good and faithful servant. Can you imagine the joy? The agony now fighting for your faith and the faith of others is insignificant to that eternal joy of seeing your Savior say, man, you did good. He calculated the cost. He went to the cross, died in our place, paid for our sins. He conquered death three days later, and he gives eternal life to all who would believe. And those of us here who have believed, we are part of the called. And he has called us all to not just fight for the faith, but to fight for him. Fight for him who fought for us. We are to fight for him who fought for us. Again, he calculated the cost, and he saw a world with you and me worth the agony. And it's worth the cost for us to look like Jesus. So I'm going to close now uh, with the benediction or the closing that Jude has, and then we'll be done. It says, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ. So he's saying to the God who has wrapped you up so tight in his love, to the God who's never going to let go of you, to the God who's going to stand you before Jesus, to that God, be glory, be majesty, be dominion and authority before time and now and forever. Amen.